Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Clark Futch, a co-founder, managing partner, and chairman of the investment committee at Healthcare Royalty Partners, which is an investment firm that purchases royalties and uses debt-like instruments to generate non-correlated return streams from biopharmaceutical assets. The firm is a leader in the space and has invested over $3 billion in 70 investments since its founding 14 years ago. Our conversation covers Clark's background in investment banking and path to pharmaceutical royalties in the earliest days of the business. We discuss the nature of the opportunity, the reason why it exists and how it works, and the team at place at Healthcare Royalty Partners that makes it happen. We then turn to the investment process, covering sourcing, screening criteria, due diligence, deal structure, portfolio construction, the competitive landscape, risks, and opportunities in the current market. Clark offers an inside look at one of the more intriguing modern investment strategies with great insight and examples along the way. Please enjoy my first meeting with Clark Futch from Healthcare Royalty Partners. Clark, great to see you. Good to see you. Well, why don't we just start with your background and how in the world someone finds their way into pharmaceutical royalties? Yeah, well, it's certainly not a natural path into investing in pharmaceutical royalties, for sure. My background is not all that glamorous. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, 
went to Vanderbilt University to undergraduate, thought I was going to be a lawyer, or at least my parents thought I was going to be a lawyer my whole life. But I ended up, this was in the late 80s, I ended up getting a job in New York and working on Wall Street a couple of years, subsequently did go back to law school, University of Virginia. And in law school, you have these summer clerkships, and it's three years, so you have two summers. And I did that for two summers and figured out that I didn't want to be a lawyer for the rest of my life. And so I ended up going right out of law school directly back into investment banking. I wanted to focus on high-growth exciting companies. So I went to work for Raymond James and they were focused on more of the growth sectors of the economy. And their program at the time, you rotated around into different departments. So I was in the technology group for six months. And then I was in what we called leisure and entertainment, which was casinos and restaurants. And then I ended up, my last rotation was in the healthcare group. And I just ended up staying there. At the time, I was focused more on what we call healthcare services, so nursing homes and various physician practice management groups and things like that, because my background was finance and legal, not really science. And I left Raymond James in 1999, moved out to San Francisco to work for a guy named Tom Weisel, who had sold his firm. He founded called Montgomery Securities, started a new firm called Thomas Weisel Partners, And I moved out there. I think I literally was like the first healthcare person in the firm. There were 250 technology-oriented folks. There, I started doing more life sciences, underwriting, and M&A as an investment banker. And that's how I got in the pharmaceutical area. Of course, every investment banker thinks they can be a principal investor or wants to. And I was no different, I suppose, in that respect. I subsequently moved from San Francisco to New York to work out at the New York office. And I got a call from a recruiter about this firm, Paul Capital, which had this royalty business they had just started. I didn't know anything about it, but better to be lucky than smart. My timing was pretty good. That was towards the end of 2001. By that time, the dot-com boom crash had occurred and the investment banking underwriting business had dried up and a little bit of a leap of faith, but I got hired by this firm, Paul Capital. And they were really one of the early pioneers in this royalty monetization market when it was tiny. I mean, tiny, meaning the first year I was there, I think the total amount of transaction volume of all deals added up together for the whole year was like $150 million. So really, really small. It's subsequently grown last year's about $9 billion of transaction volume. So it's grown dramatically. Having advised boards and management teams on raising capital, I thought there was a lot of long-term opportunity for this quote-unquote alternative form of financing. And I thought my clients, who I'd been servicing as an investment banker, there'd be times when they would find this financing mechanism of selling royalties as attractive. And so it took a little bit of a leap of faith and the rest, as they say, is history. And so at what point in time did you decide to set out and start your own firm? So that happened at the end of 2006. I had been at Paul Capital for five years. I'd become a partner there and that was going well. We had Paul Royalty Fund number one. Then when I was there, we raised Paul Royalty Fund number two, which was about over two times the size. We're about to go out and raise the next fund. And that's a time which forces a discussion internally, as you know from your background about economics. And this is a movie played over and over again, but myself and two other partners there basically couldn't come to agreement. And we left without anything firm. And In hindsight, it was probably much riskier than I thought at the time. (laughs) I had a very good job. I was doing very well and I had four kids and a mortgage and all that stuff. And you go from that to making zero. It's a bit like jumping out of the airplane with a parachute on and you don't know if it's going to engage until you're actually outside the airplane and going down. But we were very fortunate because when we left Paul Capital, 
the LPs called me. And we had to be very careful because we had certain non-solicits and all that stuff, but we followed it to the letter of the law. But it gave us an opportunity to have access to capital. We left Paul Capital in the fall of 2006, set up Healthcare Royalty Partners, and we were able to close on some capital about July of 2007. I'd love to take a step back and understand what is this pharmaceutical royalty marketplace? Our business is about delivering non-correlated yield. And non-correlated meaning the returns are not correlated to the capital markets. Rather, what it's correlated to is the sales of pharmaceutical products. All a royalty is, is just a percentage of net sales of the product. 1%, 10%, somewhere in that range, typically. And the reason you have royalties If you went back two or three decades in the pharmaceutical industry, the big companies, the GlaxoSmithKlines, the Merck, Pfizer's of the world, they would invent 60, 70 percent of their products internally in their own research and development laboratories and then run the clinical trials to get the products approved and then manufacture and market the products themselves. But what's happened over the last almost three decades now is that ratio has inverted such that today, the last estimate I saw was 70% of the products sold by the large companies have been invented at small companies. And you've had a multi-decade trend in the pharma industry of outsourcing research and development. And That has been accelerated in part by the growth of venture capital and the growth of venture capital for life sciences in the 1980s and 1990s and then 2000, and then the IPO market to fund the smaller, fast-growing biopharmaceutical companies. And you have the larger companies really evolving their business model to really where they're marketing and distribution companies. So what happens typically today is you'll have a small growing company develop some technology, but it doesn't have the infrastructure to sell the product, and they will sell the patent rights from a small company to a big company in exchange for royalty, just a percentage of sales. So let me give you an example of a deal that we've done, which is publicly disclosed. A few years ago, we bought a royalty and a new vaccine for shingles. Shingles, you may be familiar with it. It's a pretty serious issue. It can be mild. It can be quite severe. Mainly affects people 50 years and older. And there was an existing vaccine, but the existing vaccine to prevent shingles only worked about half the time and only lasted a couple of years. This new vaccine which is marketed by GlaxoSmithKline called Shingrix, works about 90% of the time and can last up to a decade or longer. So it's a far superior product. And a small company in Boston, and this is very typical, small company in Boston, which is one of the life science hotspots, had developed some technology, patented that technology, licensed the patent rights to GSK way back when, in exchange for royalty, I think it was like 2% of sales, so relatively modest. Glaxo goes and runs the clinical trials, gets it approved, starts selling the vaccine, and starts paying royalty back to the small company in Boston. We go to the small company in Boston who we've been in dialogue and we've been tracking where this product was in the FDA process. And when it got to approval, and that's the key for us, 90% of what we do are products that have been approved by the FDA. And so... Once it got approved, small companies start to receive this quarterly royalty cash flow. We go to them and say, looks like you need capital. We will pay you a lump sum amount today up front, in this case, $190 million at closing. And in exchange for the right to receive that quarterly future royalty cash flow. So today, GlaxoSmithKline, each quarter, instead of paying the small company, they pay us directly. And then we just take that cash and we immediately distribute it back to the investors in our fund vehicles. 
And so would that small company be using the $190 million for future R&D, given that this one drug already would have had approval? That's exactly right. The small company had moved on to a new therapeutic category. In their particular case, they were focused on cancer products. They were looking to raise capital to fund their own clinical trials on their own cancer products. And they basically have two options. They can raise equity and they didn't like their stock price. Most companies don't like their stock price, right? The people who are in the biotech business are fortunately natural optimists. And so they always view the future as being better. Many times it is, sometimes it's not. But in any case, they wanted to raise capital. They didn't like their stock price. It's not a company that can go to JP Morgan and take out a loan. These companies are burning money. And they have a very interesting business model issue, which is the business model are long-term capital projects. It takes years to do these clinical trials and to get it approved can take 10 years and it costs a lot of money. And yet they finance it on a short-term basis every year, every other year. So they're constantly out raising capital, these smaller biopharmaceutical companies that are the primary owners of these royalties. So long story short, they wanted to essentially reallocate those dollars to their own products. And so that's why you have a business transaction. And you mentioned the market is $9 billion. How big is that in the scale of all of the, maybe it's FDA-approved drugs each year? Well, I think the way to think about it is, what's the total amount of capital raised to fund these biopharmaceutical companies? And how much of that is this royalty financing? And the answer is, $9 billion is a drop in the bucket still, even though it's been massive growth in our little niche of the world. It's a drop in the bucket if you look at primarily equity raised, either venture capital raised or IPOs or follow-on equity. It's a small fraction. There's two, three, four, five times as much money raised in the equity markets each year. But the equity markets can be volatile, right? We're certainly seeing that now. And so what we try to do is we're kind of always there as a financing source. And a lot of it is about just getting the word out, just educating people that this is an option. One of the things we've done, we've gone to a regional sourcing approach. So we've opened offices in Boston. I mentioned that the Boston company with the shingles vaccine, San Francisco, London, and then the greater New York area. So we try to get locally, uh, have people on the ground and be involved in that community and educate people. These companies are raising capital all the time. Every time may not be the right time for our type of financing, but at some point in their corporate financing history, it will be the right time. And so we're trying to find those intersections. I want to dive through that whole investment process. Before we jump into that, what does your team look like? I'm particularly curious about what types of domain expertise you need to be able to implement this strategy? So the team has grown. It's grown from the three founders, including myself, to about 30 people today. And it's grown for two reasons. One is this regional approach that I mentioned. And in each of those cases, we've taken someone from the home office in the New York area and repotted them, so to speak, into these offices. And that's gone incredibly well So we've grown geographically. The other area we've grown in is in the science and medical capabilities that we have internally. When I first started out, which is like 19 years ago now doing this, we would outsource a lot of the clinical, scientific, medical diligence. Roughly 80% would be outsourced. And what we've been able to do because we've grown, we've raised more capital, We've been able to insource the scientific and medical capabilities such that today we're doing, again, it's inverted. We're probably doing 80% of the work internally at HCR. And so that also has driven a growth in headcount. But it's a very technical and specialized work because we have to look at the patents the intellectual property. We have our own internal IP council. We have to look at manufacturing and making sure that that the product can be 
manufactured without any disruptions and, and therefore sold and therefore the royalty paid. We look at the clinical, scientific, and regulatory aspects. And those three risks, the patents, manufacturing, and regulatory, are really what we view as potential binary risk. So if the product, for safety reasons, gets pulled from the market because it's have some significant side effect, that's a problem for us because no sales means no royalties. Our process, which we've refined and honed over now quite a long time, is designed to weed out those potential binary risks. And that leaves us with the one remaining risk, which is commercial risk. How well does the product sell relative to our projections? And there's a whole host of things to consider there about existing competition, new competition, what's the reimbursement dynamic for that particular drug, market dynamics, all of that consideration. And so we need a real broad skill set in some ways, but also very deep in other ways. And you have to wrap that in the fact that we do deals, right? We make investments. So you need people who can understand how to get a deal from A to Z. So it's complicated, but it's fun. Well, let's walk through some more. I mean, we've touched on some of this and the sourcing you've mentioned, these regional teams. What do they actually do to find these investments? We have both a top-down and a bottoms-up approach. So from a top-down standpoint, one of the things we've done on the scientific side is we've created a research team, which really culminated in two substantial senior hires. One is our chief medical officer, who has a lot of clinical regulatory expertise, and one is our head of research, who's a PhD scientist by background. So our research team, really headed by head of research, will put out these white papers every six months or so. So, for example, he authored one on migraines a couple of years ago. Hasn't been any new development in migraines for two decades. People use what are called triptans, sumatriptan and other things. And they work reasonably well, but they don't work on everyone. So there's a whole new class of drugs called CGRPs. And what we did is we put together a white paper, not to be externally published, just for internal investment consumption, and reviewed the entire landscape, what drugs were about to be approved, what impact that would have on existing drugs, what impact it would have on things like Botox. Botox, interestingly enough, is used for severe migraines. So once that was written and published, for lack of a better word, internally, then each of the regional leads goes out and tries to fund companies in their region that fit that investment thesis. And we had a view about what was going to work and what was going to not work. And so that's more of the top down. We do that by therapeutic category. We're writing one right now on, which is going to be interesting, on the impact of COVID-19 today and in the future. So we try to do timely top-down. And then we do a bottoms-up approach. So each regional lead, we have what we call a top 100 list, roughly 25 companies or royalty opportunities in each region that the product's about to get approved so you can track where things are on the FDA process or... Most of these are public companies, even though they're small cap public companies that need capital. We know they need capital because we're tracking what their cash burn is, what their cash balance is, and people are in a dialogue. And so we have quarterly meetings. Everyone has a target list of their top 25 or 30. We go around the room and they talk about, here's been my interaction with this target this quarter. And every quarter, a few go off and a few new ones come on. So it's really a systematic approach that we have going out and in each region, having the folks track the companies and marrying that with this top-down thematic approach to try to get to the special situations where we think it's an attractive product, asset, but also the right risk-reward calculation from our standpoint. What do the characteristics of an ideal investment look like from all of those perspectives? The target investment characteristics are several. First of all, we're totally focused on pharmaceuticals, biopharmaceuticals. So we're not doing medical devices or diagnostics or healthcare services or healthcare IT or managed care. 
are there reasons why you exclude maybe medical devices that could have a similar looking trajectory? Yes, two reasons. Number one, if you look at our team, the DNA of our team is really pharmaceuticals. So if you look at the background of people, they've been trained and grown up professionally in the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical investing area. So that's the background. And it's a little bit of you don't know what you don't know. There are different elements in medical devices that are different from pharmaceuticals, different patent characteristics, different reimbursement characteristics. So in some ways, we stick to our knitting. And the other is for what we do, which is trying to acquire protected, sustainable cash flow, pharmaceuticals is the most attractive area. Why? Because you have patents and the patents are strongest in pharmaceuticals where you have a patent on a chemical entity as opposed to a certain type of device. And device, typically, you can engineer around the patent. You can do it a different way. If you have a patent on a chemical entity, there's really no way to get around that. So we look for strong patents. That gives you protected cash flow. We look for long patent life and high barriers to entry so that that's a sustainable cash flow. And maybe the most important thing is we look for the marketing company that's selling the product that's either the dominant or one of the most dominant in their sector. Going back to the shingles vaccine, GlaxoSmithKline, certainly one of maybe the most dominant vaccine marketer around the globe. So that matters, of course, because our returns driven off sales and therefore royalty cash flow. So those are the things that we look for when we're trying to suss out these various opportunities. And then as you start walking through the due diligence process, you mentioned trying to eliminate the binary risks just as a starting point. I want to start with how much do your decisions tie to the science and how much of it are the people or the company that will implement the commercial plan? It's both. You have to have both. And you can have a great product, but products don't sell themselves. They're sold by people and companies and management teams. And you can also have a product that's maybe okay, maybe not great, maybe it's not high science, but if you have a marketing company that dominates a certain area, they can do very well with those products. We've seen that in the dermatology area, for example. Not a lot of high science in dermatology. You're treating acne and things like that. But there's certain companies that have a long history there. They have a large product portfolio. So they're not just selling one product to the dermatologist. They're selling a suite of products. And they have relationships, right? The sales force has relationships with these doctors. So we really look for both. And one thing about focusing on drugs that are already approved by the FDA is we're not really taking science risk. We know the drug works. You have the clinical trials that have been conducted. You know the results from that. If it works, thumbs up. The royalty is valuable. If it fails, it's binary. The royalty is worth zero because there's not going to be any sales or royalty cash flow. So once we get past that, we do want medically necessary products. People need to take their epilepsy drugs, right? They're going to get their shingles vaccine. They're going to take their migraine medication. Maybe in bad markets, they take more antidepressants than they would otherwise. But what we don't do is things that are more optional or cosmetic. We dabbled in that a little bit a long time ago. It didn't work so well. So we're, we're sticking to things that people really need and things that drugs that are ultimately going to save the healthcare system money. And that's a really interesting dynamic in where we are because, yes, the cost of the pharmaceutical is high, but if you take your Lipitor every day and you prevent someone from having a heart attack and keep them out of the hospital, it's very expensive to go into the hospital to get some kind of cardiovascular procedure if you have a heart problem. It's much cheaper, and this is why the insurance companies your Lipitor, they'll give you for free, basically, because they know the economics of that. It's worth it for them to just pay for it. You mentioned 90% of them are FDA approved. What are the situations when you will take the approval risk? 
we've done a dozen, a little more than a dozen deals where the phase three data has read out or been announced. But even after that, it takes about a year plus or minus to get approval by either the FDA or the EMEA in Europe or the corresponding regulatory authority in Japan. So there is this period where the phase three data has read out. During that time period, the companies are getting ready to launch the product. They've applied to the FDA. There's a back and forth. It always takes a little bit longer than the companies hope, but the companies need to prepare. And so they need capital to get ready to launch the product, to hire a sales force, to assign manufacturing contracts, because a lot of the manufacturing is done by these contract manufacturers on an outsourced basis. So they need some capital, but not all. So we may put a portion, maybe a third of the capital in six months before approval, three months before approval, and then have it set up that when it's approved, the second tranche, the post-approval tranche with two-thirds of the capital goes in. So those are the situations where we may do something and knock on wood, we've been very good about predicting that. And the second part of the answer is we're looking for drugs based on our experience and our team, including a group of senior advisors that we have work with us on an exclusive basis, have tremendous amount of experience. I mean, I say this number, it sounds like it's made up, but it's actually true. Our team has over 500 years of experience. So we're looking for those situations where our conclusion after doing deep due diligence, and remember, we don't trade stocks. So we sign confidentiality agreements, we get underneath the hood, so to speak, and we're able to interact with the companies, review the FDA correspondence, and we have to come to the conclusion that the drug is going to get approved, and it's a matter of when, not if. And again, fortunately, I'm knocking on wood here. We've done not a lot of those, but it's been a very good area for us. When you're sizing up the commercial market opportunity, how do you balance out the importance of, just call it volume and price? Yeah, well, that used to be going back 10, 15 years. You just assume prices went up 5, 10% every year. You put that in your model and the power of compounding, you do that over 10 years, it makes a big difference. Not so much anymore. The one area in our diligence that's changed the most in the last decade has been this willingness to pay, and particularly in the U.S. market I'm talking about now. But the idea of drug pricing, drug reimbursement, what price increases can you bake in? And we're looking at a deal now where the company historically had taken 9 or 10% price increases. This drug's been on the market for a while, and now they're taking 3% price increases, so more like inflation. So it really is asset-specific, and it's not something where you can just make generalizations. You have to go deep. And so what's changed in our diligence process, and I'd say the last five to seven years in particular, is we go out and we talk to the insurance companies. We survey the insurance companies, and again, going back to this shingles vaccine example, I think we talked to insurance companies that represented, I don't remember exactly, but something like 70, 80, 90 million lives in the U.S., so a very large swath of the population, to get a sense of not just what the price is today, that's relatively easy to figure out, but what's the price going to be two, three, four, five years from now? Now, in the case of the shingles vaccine, this is a very inexpensive product in the whole scheme of things. It costs about $400. Commercial plans in the U.S. under the Affordable Care Act have to reimburse these vaccines if they're approved by the Commission on Vaccines, which that one is. And you think about it from the insurance company's standpoint, it's a no-brainer. I pay $400, and I'm going to most likely prevent somebody from getting shingles and therefore maybe not being able to go to work or having to go to the hospital and get other kinds of treatments. So the ROI and in finance speak is quite high. So we're looking for those type of situations. We also do quite a bit in what's called orphan drugs. We've been investing there for a long time, actually. But the reason we like those is, number one, in addition to the patent protection, there's special regulatory considerations that you receive if you develop an orphan drug. So way back when in the 80s, legislation was put in place in the U.S. 
that if you, as an incentive to get companies to develop drugs where you have very small number of patients, but very high impact, a lot of times it can be children who have genetic defects of one sort or the other. In order to make it economically attractive, the government put in legislation that said, if you do it, and you have to go through an FDA regulatory review, we will give you seven years of exclusivity where we will not approve another drug that does the same thing. So again, back to the barriers to entry and predictability of cash flow, sustainability, that's attractive about orphan products. And the other thing that's attractive about them is there's a very high, what we call WTP, willingness to pay. And so again, if you have people who had some kind of uh, genetic defect and it results in some kind of enzyme deficiency, there's very few of those patients around. Maybe it's a couple of handful. So the willingness to pay is very high. The drugs are very expensive, but it's a very small line item on any insurance plan as opposed to cholesterol or diabetes or things that affect millions and millions of patients. So your pricing power there is better and therefore makes it more attractive and predictable for us. So once you've gone through this whole process of finding the opportunities and sessing them out and really doing all this work on the marketplace, then you have to do the deal. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what do these deal dynamics look like in this space? It's like anything. It's tough to get deals done and you got to find the win-win, what works for the company and what works for you. We look at a lot of deals. We look at, I don't know, last year we looked at 150 or 200 deals and we'll do four or five a year, something like that. So a lot of it we try to screen out at the beginning. We have your typical funnel. We're adding stuff to the top of the funnel all the time, trying to screen through these various criteria that I laid out. And then we're trying to assess what's the willingness of the counterparty to do something and what's the return relative to the risk? And are we in the same zip code, so to speak, as the company? Into that, it spits out four or five. So I would say on the company side, and that's most of our business, it's really what are their capital needs? What are their opportunities? What are their alternatives to raise capital, whether that's doing an equity or a convert or something like that? And then how are we positioned relative on a cost of capital basis? And one of the things that we do and an advantage is that the structures are not all the same in terms of what part of the cash flow that you're buying. So again, I'll, I'll use the shingles vaccine because it's a theme and it's easy. We paid them $190 million at closing, but of course, our sales projections and therefore royalty cash flow projections and the companies are different. The company tends to be more optimistic. They're both selling an asset, so they're incented to be optimistic and they're just naturally more optimistic. So what we did there is my partner in Boston came up with a very creative structure that said, okay, we'll pay you 190 million closing, but if the products hit certain sales at certain times, you can earn more money in these milestones that added up to another, I think another 40 million in total. But also there was a downside protection for us and what we call a reverse milestone, which said if the product didn't ramp as quickly as the seller thought, they owed us a milestone back. So there was some symmetry to that. These things, it's not just you have one meeting and the deal, there's a lot of iteration back and forth and trying to understand their perception of risk and our perception of risk. Is there a way to, you can always price that by lowering or increasing the purchase price, but are there ways to strip out certain cash flows or create certain milestones that reward them if they're right and reward us if we're right? And so that's really the art of the deal. There's art and science to ours. There's a lot of science around the actual medical science and the market projections and drug pricing, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the art of the deal. And it's why the folks that we have in these regional offices, you're the quarterback of these deals, right? You got to get all your linemen lined up and your receivers in the right place and the running backs in the right place. And you got to call the right plays. But ultimately, the quarterback's got to hand the ball off or throw the ball and get it to the right person. So that's the way it works here, too. 
In that particular example with the reverse payment, part of the reason this deal happens is because it's a small company that needs money to do their R&D, as we talked about. How do you protect that asset? Do they just take some of it and put it in escrow? What happens with that piece that you could claw back? Very interesting question. And so we bought a royalty and this reverse milestone back to us was protected by, we had security and basically all the other assets of the company. So it was sort of a credit instrument wrapped into a royalty monetization. And it turns out in this particular case, the company was more right than we were. That product done phenomenally well, did a billion dollars almost in the first year, two billion in the second year. So they turned out to be right. And God bless them. They probably earned these milestones and they didn't have to pay the reverse milestone to us. But that's okay. That's a good outcome for everyone. To answer your question specifically, we had security or a lien in other assets of the company. And relative wasn't a huge milestone. I don't remember exactly what it was, like $25 million or something like that. So we thought relative to the credit risk, we were well protected. Once you've purchased this royalty stream, do you take any role in trying to help that stream become more valuable? It's unlike the venture capital or more classic private equity model. We don't sit on boards typically. We don't change out management. On a very rare occasion, we've had to step in and be involved, but not very often. It's not what we're set up to do. We're not a loan-to-own type of investor. On the other hand, it's not quite as simple as just buying a publicly traded bond in GSK and collecting your interest every quarter. So it's a little bit in between, and I would describe it more as active portfolio management. So in the case of the shingles vaccine, when you have GlaxoSmithKline, that's the marketer, at underwriting, you're just making a bet, essentially, that GSK is incented and that they're good and the product's good enough that you're going to be aligned. With some smaller companies, we do have quarterly meetings where we sit down with the company. And historically, we've done it in person. And it's more like a board level review of information. And so we do have a dialogue with companies. And we try to be helpful to them, but we're not really operationally involved in the business. And we're not set up to do that as a business model. That would take a lot more people than we have. So most of our alpha if you will, is in the underwriting. You mentioned portfolio management. And how do you think about the construction of your portfolio, say, in an individual fund? Diversification, diversification, diversification. As much as you love any product, and you love them all when you sign the contracts, kind of like your children, you love them all when they come out. But we just try to be diversified. So we have that diversification or concentration limits built into the fund documents, the limited partnership agreement around no more than a certain amount per product, no more than a certain amount per marketing entity, no more than a certain amount in the therapeutic category. But it's highly diversified. That's really what we try to do. And if you look at our last portfolio, which we finished investing last about six months ago, seven months ago, we had 25 investments. That was 28 different products across 11 different therapeutic categories. So very, very diversified. So if there's some, I'm using quotes, silver bullet in cancer that comes out, which is not likely to be, but if there were, you may be harmed, but you're not going to be killed. That's sort of our orientation is not bet the farm on any any one product. So we, we're very focused on diversification. Fortunately, we have, most of our investors are large government pension funds. That's 75%. And so they're doing it because they're looking for non-correlated yield and they're big institutions. And so we've set up some co-investment vehicles that allow us to fight out of our weight class, so to speak, so do larger deals and yet still maintain that diversification. So we've set up the business model where we can achieve both of those objectives. And it's, it's good for us. It's good for our investors, good for potential counterparties because we can do larger transactions. But that's largely how we think about building the portfolio is around diversification. There are areas, for example, that we've been focused on recently that we're looking for more exposure to. So in our particular case, the two O's, oncology and orphan, 
Why? Well, we talked about pricing dynamics, pricing headwinds in the U.S. That really applies to almost all therapeutic categories other than orphan and oncology. So that's a case where we're trying to get, it's not an Excel spreadsheet, but we're trying to get a little more exposure to those areas. If we can find the right assets, big if, if we can find the right assets, trying to get some more exposure, because we think the particular dynamics and those subsegments, if you will, are more favorable. How do some of these investments go wrong? They typically don't go radically wrong. You're usually within a band of returns. On our core investments of buying royalties, and the other thing that we'll do is we'll loan money or lend money secured by the royalties or secured by the patents. We've done that quite a number of times. You just did one with a large respiratory product that GSK also happens to be the marketer for. But the way they go wrong is sales are just less than you think, and the structure may mitigate the downside to you, but doesn't make you whole. So that's how they go wrong. They can go wrong. And I think we've made our senior team since going back to the beginning, something like 70 investments. So quite a few. Occasionally, you have a manufacturing issue. We've had that happen once. Occasionally, you might have an IP issue that tends not to be a black and white situation. It tends to be gray in the middle, where maybe the patent doesn't, it gets challenged and doesn't last as long as you thought it was. It can go the other directions way. We've had things that have lasted longer than our original assumption. We haven't had any drugs pulled from the market for safety reasons, knock on wood. So again, going back to those three binary risks, We've been not perfect, but you know, very good over a long period of time at getting rid of those binary risks around patents, manufacturing, and safety. And then it's the commercial. Maybe the company didn't do as good a job as we thought. Maybe it was a competitive product that came on the market, took more market share. That's happened to us, happened to us in the last portfolio where we predicted a new product would come onto the market because it was in clinical trials and late stage clinical trials. It did. We were predicting the new product was going to take 60% market share and our product would retain 40% and it took 70% market share. So it's not as good as we thought, but it wasn't catastrophic. And sometimes it goes the other direction. Just to get a sense of that base rate of the 70 investments you've done, how many of them have you had negative returns on your capital? If you look at our core investments, so that's probably... 60 of the 70. There's a few non-core things we did where we invested in some equity. We don't do that anymore because that didn't go well. But the core focus, which is all that we're doing and have been doing for the last five years, I think of the realized deals, right? We still have a portfolio that's out there. Realized deals, I think there's one, maybe two, where we didn't get our capital back. And it wasn't a zero. One, fortunately, was a very small product where we probably lost a little bit. That's the only one I can think of where we've lost capital. And we've, we've got an existing portfolio. We'll see, see how those play out. So there's some that these are long-term investments that yet to be realized. What you lay out is an awfully attractive proposition in a world where people get concerned about capital markets and capital market prices. And you had mentioned that these companies have other alternatives of equity or convert raises. What have you seen over the years in terms of competition in your space specifically? So other competitors that are offering similar royalty deals that you are? There's certainly more competition today than there was when I started 19 years ago. It's still relatively concentrated. So I would say 80, 90% of the capital that's available is probably in the hands of the top five, six, seven people. So it's still relatively concentrated. The barriers to entry are still quite high trying to put together this team of people to do this type of work. If you have enough time and money, you can do just about anything, but it's not easy. And it's not such a large market that we've seen the big, big asset managers come in because you can't deploy billions and billions of capital every year. That being said, there are more competitors. People change firms a little bit, different business cards, but on the royalty monetization side, we've probably seen people come in in the pre-2008 
big macro hedge funds that were doing some of everything, did a little bit of what I call royalty tourism, but they didn't build the team. And then when things changed really in late 07 in the credit markets and certainly in 08 and 09, those folks have largely gone away. And so what you have are people that are specialists like us. And so about half of our book is in doing royalty monetizations. The other half are credit-related type investments. There's probably more competition there where you have people who are doing not just biopharmaceutical credit of some sort, but will also do medical devices and healthcare services, et cetera. So broader in healthcare, but maybe just focused on credit-type instruments. You've had more competition there. In the current market, we're actually seeing more attractive terms in the credit side of our book. But we've gone through periods where we did very little activity because we didn't see things that we liked. In 2015, which was the first year of our investment period in our prior fund, Healthcare Realty Partners Number 3, in all of 2015, we did one deal. And that's hard to do when you're in the first year of your investment period because investors want to know why they're paying you a management fee if you're not getting any money to work. But that changed in 2016 and 17 and 18 were very good years uh, in terms of deployment. And the first half of this year, 2020, is a record. But you're going to have ups and downs. A little bit depends on competition. There has been a lot more capital raised, but the capital's been consumed. So when you look at the quote unquote dry powder that's available, it's still in a pretty good supply demand dynamic as an investor. That doesn't mean you can go pick off great assets for super cheap prices. That It's not that. It's not a distressed environment. But it has been pretty attractive. And again, our orientation has been less about trying to put as much capital as we could out the door. And it's a bit been around trying to create this risk return cash flow dynamic that our investors are seeking. And so in a baseball analogy, we're not trying to hit home runs, but that means you can't strike out, right? The best home run hitters also strike out the most. That's really a venture capital business, which is a good business. It's just not our business. We're a singles and doubles business. Do you tend to bump into those competitors on the same deals? We do. We certainly do. It's, again, it's a little bit different flavor if it's a royalty purchase or a credit type of deal. Those tend to be different. But a lot of the deals that we close are on a proprietary basis and or no intermediary is involved. Most of the deals we do do not involve an intermediary, some kind of investment banker. And that's because we're out there every day developing these relationships and it's not that the companies don't know what they're doing. They, in fact, the best deals to get done are with a sophisticated counterparty who knows generally what the market is and is looking for speed and certainty. So you can win on speed and certainty. And so we're trying to find that intersection, that rare intersection between a high quality asset and the right risk return, the very few circumstances where those intersect means you work it a lot and you do very few. So you had mentioned this upcoming white paper on COVID-19. I'd love to get your sense of where you think opportunities will come out of this for you. It seems to be clear already that, remember going back to my comment, one of the really interesting aspects in the biopharmaceutical arena is that people have long-term business models and they finance on a relatively short-term basis. So just because you have COVID-19, yes, clinical trials may be pushed back a quarter or two quarters because the patients can't get the blood test or they don't want to come into the doctor's office. But that's just a bit of delay. It's not going to shut down these programs forever. And likewise, if you're a company that just gotten a recent FDA approval, Maybe you don't launch this quarter. Maybe it, it's six months down the road. And we're doing these really interesting tests, which I heard on your podcast, which is wipe out the sales and cash flows for a year or two and see what happens. Because that could, in fact, happen. That could, in fact, happen. But the point I'm trying to make is what seems to be very clear already is that companies are valuing cash 
access to capital, certainty of close, and it's not just about lowest cost of capital. If you went back a year or two years for sure in the more credit-oriented type deals in our market, it was just about lowest cost of capital. And so we looked and passed on a lot of that. Today, if you can deliver in size and certainty, we're getting calls from companies that a year ago we might have had a dialogue with, but there wasn't really any serious interaction. We're getting calls from them saying, hey, we really would like to do something now. And even companies that have cash, remember, these companies almost all are significantly cash burning. So they're always looking forward, thinking about how do I raise capital. We're getting calls from people saying, look, we want some cushion. And so we're having an offsite in a couple of weeks, although it's going to be a Zoom offsite. And the question is, at the two ends of the spectrum, if you're finding good opportunities today, do you do everything that you can that you can find? Or if you think the future is going to be better as an investor, maybe not for the economy, but as an investor, do you just wait? And so we'll see where we come out in that debate in the middle somewhere, I suspect, but it is an interesting intellectual discussion. These companies, they're creating new medicines and launching new medicines. We've really had a renaissance in the biotech, biopharma industry in the last five years. A lot of great things have come out and are coming out. So they'll get financed. It's just a matter of there's probably going to be a consolidation of flight to quality. The strong will get stronger. The weak will get weaker. But what I'm hearing from CEOs, and we're now having these quarterly meetings by Zoom instead of in person, What I'm hearing from them, I also see some of our potential counterparties and portfolio companies that are raising money to go on offense. So it's part offense. The way one CEO described it to me last weekend was I'm raising this capital part defensively to make sure I've shored up my balance sheet. But also, Clark, I think that there are going to be opportunities to acquire some other products in the next 6, 12, 18 months. If I can raise that capital today, even if it's a little bit more expensive maybe than I want, I think I can take that and reinvest it at a much higher return than I have to pay for it. And so I want to be well positioned. So that's what we're seeing. Well, Clark, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions so we can uh, wrap up. So what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Well, it used to be, I like to play tennis. I like to do that. I have a bicycle that I like to ride, mainly during the warm months, here in the Connecticut area. And also I read a lot. I'm a pretty, I travel a lot, at least historically I have, and pretty voracious consumer of books. That's what keeps me busy. What's your biggest pet peeve? People who are self-absorbed. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? People who are so self-absorbed that they're delusional. <laughs> and do you see that a lot in your space? I think you see that in every space. That probably could apply to both of those questions, but... Yeah, there's always a disconnect between how you perceive yourself and reality. Just for some folks, it's a much wider gap than for others. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Lots, actually. Lots and lots, which I've tried to pass down to my kids. We'll see. That's talk about a long-term experiment. I would say the things probably most stayed with me is the advice of watch what people do, not what they say. I think that's good advice for a personal and for business. Are people genuine or are they hypocritical? So that's what stayed with me. All right. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you learned a lot earlier in your life? I would say sleeping on a decision. I think when you are younger, both on the personal basis and business, particularly if there's a difficult or uncomfortable situation or conversation or decision you have to make, you want to go ahead and make that. And I just learned over, and it just happened this week with my wife and I on a personal matter. And I said, well, let's just sleep on it overnight. And we came to the opposite conclusion the next morning after having thought about it. So probably should have been doing that, learned that, implemented that much earlier. Well, Clark, thanks so much. It was a really interesting dive into this very fascinating niche of the markets. Really appreciate you taking the time. Sure. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.